Righteousness is not optional. Righteousness is not optional. Righteousness is not optional. It is God's requirement. It is a theme in both the Old and the New Testament. The righteousness of God. Listen to a sampling of verses from the Old Testament that makes this clear. Psalm eleven seven. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Psalm 1, verses 5 and 6. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And Zephaniah 2, 3. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. Righteousness is not optional. It's commanded. But what is righteousness? It's one of those words that if you've grown up or been exposed to the Bible for any length of time in your life is something that you are more or less familiar with. But where we are in the Bronx, words like this, righteousness, salvation, propitiation, redemption, all that is like a foreign language to people who have little knowledge of even the Bible stories. So what is righteousness? Most simply put, it is being right. God is righteous. God is good. God is by definition the one who does right and is right. His commands, his will, his law. He is the standard of what is right. When men like Noah and Job and David were called righteous men, because they lived and acted in accordance with what they knew of the law and will and command of God. They were men whose righteousness was incomplete and inconsistent. And in fact, in the case of Noah and David, their life was marked by grievous sin. And yet, they were considered to be righteousness, righteous men. And yet, that righteousness as Paul describes it, was man's righteousness. It is that which they could do. It is like Paul says in Romans chapter 5 that somebody might dare to die for a righteous person or even a good person. He's equating righteous person and good person. It's sort of like the way that this is used here is uh, he's a good person, got a good heart, good people. That's the kind of righteousness that we can produce. It looks good. It conforms externally from what we can see to what God requires. And so it is a, a kind of righteousness that is produced by you and I. However, 
There's a problem with that kind of righteousness. Isaiah says that all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. That is, our righteousness is corrupted. It's soiled by self-love and riddled by self-approval, self-affirmation. In the words of Paul, he says, in me that is in my flesh there is no good thing. There's nothing at all that I can offer to God as being righteous. Everything that I do, all of my motives, all of my thoughts, all of my passions are infected with self. With a heart that is contrary to God. Our best moments of self-denial and self-sacrifice to do good for others are offensive to God. It's not just that they're not accepted. They're offensive to him. To hold up before God that which is the, the product of our own nature with which we were born is to offend him because God finds our righteousness unacceptable. In fact, our attempt to be righteous stirs up God's righteous indignation, his white-hot anger towards people who try to become righteous in their own effort. Because God is just, and he always and absolutely judges rightly, every deviation from his law, his will, his character, must be punished. We're in trouble. We're in deep trouble. Because we are sinners by nature and by choice. Matthew will not have to be taught to lie. I'm sorry, parents, to have to say this to you, but he will not have to be taught to be selfish. He will not have to be taught to be disobedient, to be willful. It will just come naturally from him. We are those who by nature love that which God hates and hate what God loves. And he knows that. Now the people around us may not know that. They can't see the real me. But God knows. And he says that one day when everything is revealed and people stand before God without Christ and they're heart is open, so to speak, then the real them will be exposed and every mouth will be shut. No one will have any defense. No one will say or even think, but I'm a good person. It won't even enter into anyone's thought because the truth will be out and the heart of man, God says, is wicked all the time continually. That's the judgment of God. That by nature we do that which is offensive to him. And by choice. We have all done that which we knew to be wrong. We have violated our conscience. We have violated clearly expressed laws of God. We have done it. We've excused it. 
Everybody does it. I didn't really mean to do it. I was under a lot of pressure. We have reasons for what we've done, but we have all by choice done that which we knew God hated. And so we are defenseless. We have nothing to offer to God. We have no righteousness of our own. What can we present to God? Since we are sinners by nature and by by choice. And besides that, we have not honored the real God. We have downsized God to fit into our own heads, to make him understandable. So we've actually, in some cases, distorted the teaching of the word of God to make God fit into our own ideas of what is good and right, true and false. We have made him fit into our head and so made an idol of him. And idols don't save anybody. You can't really have a genuine relationship with an idol. We've not only downsized him, but we've belittled him. We've not honored him as God. We've considered other things more important than God. Other people's opinions more important than what God said. Other people's approval rather than the approval of God. We have done that which we knew God disapproved of, but we shoved him to the side. We'll deal with that later. For right now, I have to do this. We'll come back and deal with God. He'll be there waiting for me. We have put him on a shelf when he was no longer needed. We've treated him like a, a, an app for iPod. It's free and it's convenient when you need it. And so God becomes an accessory to our lives. We've all done that. We've not honored God as God, the holy, righteous, awesome, infinitely powerful and loving God. We have considered, oh man, is this almost over? We have treated God as a burden to be born. Necessary, because you don't get in trouble. But he's a burden to be born. And hopefully we can just do enough to make it through the pearly gates. We have ignored him when he wasn't convenient. And we have not treasured him as being the most wonderful, the most desirable of all beings. Oh, the judgment of God is right. We're sinners by nature and by choice, and we have belittled God frequently. We said it in the prayer of confession. Did you see it there? Don't trust you. Don't pray to you. All the other sources of help and comfort. We've all confessed it in this room that we all have violated the holy God's command. We are not righteous. But righteousness is commanded. It's not optional. So we're in deep trouble. Our righteousness is no good. And therefore, true, acceptable righteousness must come, must come from the only one who is righteous, and that is God himself. Righteousness comes from God. None other kind of righteousness is acceptable to him. That means that we must, from God, receive a righteousness that is 
equal to his and obviously then cannot come from us. We are guilty and we are justly condemned. God has promised that the least sin deserves the maximum penalty. After all, what did Adam and Eve do? They ate a piece of fruit. That's all they did. Yeah, God told them not to. But all what they did was not eat, a, they ate a piece of fruit. They didn't rip some pregnant woman open. They didn't do some sort of horrible sin. They ate a piece of fruit for crying out loud. And God said, that's it, you're done, you're dead, everything's, the world's going to get all messed up. For that, come on. That's the kind of God that exists. That's the real God, the God who is truly righteous. He will not let the smallest little deviation from his character and will escape his notice and his punishment. So says the God who is. And he has to do that. He can't just say, well, let bygones be bygones. I know you didn't really mean to do it. We'll give you another chance. Uh, you were under a lot of pressure. Um, do the best you can from now on. Uh, I forgive you, and uh, let's try again. Forgive and forget. God can't do that because he has said that he must, he must punish any violation of his will and character. He said in Proverbs 17, 15, that he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both an abomination to the Lord. If God were to justify the wicked and just forget it, he would be calling down a curse upon himself. He would be an abomination to himself. He's not going to do that. So there must be some other solution. Sinners need to somehow be declared not guilty of grievous sin. Somehow there must be a removal not only of the guilty verdict, but of the just sentence that has been passed by this holy God upon all sinners. That Sen sentence of eternal punishment must be removed. The sinner needs to be justified, needs to be considered no longer guilty. And that's what Jesus did on the cross. That's what God did. God became man. Spirit became flesh and did what you and I would not be able to do for eternity. He paid for our guilt and bore the punishment. He did it on the cross. He was the propitiation. Another one of those words. He was the payment, the appeasement, the wrath-absorbing sacrifice. He was the one who uh, his sacrifice removed the guilt by absorbing the punishment for our sin. When he cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, he experienced hell. 
In that moment, the Infinite One, in a finite moment of time, experienced an eternity of hell. If Jesus were not God, he couldn't have done that. But because he was God, he could experience in that moment the eternal separation from the Father, the, the anger that God was, had directed at me and sinners like me. And so Jesus could say, it is finished. He did it all. He completed the work in experiencing the punishment for sinners who belong to him. Listen what, to what Charles Spurgeon wrote about this. He said, here I stand, the sinner. I mention myself as the representative of you all. I am condemned to die. God says, I will condemn that man. I must, I will punish him. Christ comes in, puts me aside, and stands himself in my stead. When the plea is demanded, Christ says, guilty, takes my guilt to be his own guilt. When the punishment is to be executed, forth comes Christ. Punish me, he says. I have put my righteousness on that man. I have taken that man's sins on me. Father, punish me. And consider that man to have been me. Let him reign in heaven. Let me suffer misery. Let me endure his curse. And let him receive my blessing. The guilty must not only be declared not guilty. He must also be declared righteous qualified by God to be with the righteous God. And that's what Jesus has done. His righteousness has been given to his people. Our guilt has been taken. It hasn't just been brushed aside. It's been taken by God himself. How can this not stir us up to worship? How can this not cause us to stand in awe of this God? Who could have ever thought of anything like this except God himself? That God would bear the punishment for sinners who hate him, who, who would wish he were no longer existent. And yet, that's what he did in the place of sinners. Clothed now with the righteousness of Christ, we stand before him as acceptable because of what Christ has done. Jesus redeemed his people out of the wages of sin, which is death, and from the slavery to the power of sin in this life. The price that he paid was his own life. That was the ransom for the redemption. The redemption price had to be paid, and it was the life of God the Son himself. But this righteousness from God cannot be bought. It is a gift. The gift of righteousness. We can't make a deal with God. We can't somehow try to work things out with him. We, we can't buy it with our tears, with our self-flagellation, 
we can't buy it with being overwhelmed with regret and shame. None of that makes any impression on God. In fact, he becomes more indignant that you could think that you could do something that would be improving upon the death of his son. What could you possibly add to what Jesus has done? How could you possibly punish yourself more than Jesus himself has been punished? It is wrong to try to punish yourself for your past sin. It's denying the work of Christ. It's denying the value of Christ. It's self-righteousness. It's an attempt to improve upon what God himself has done. And we can't earn it. No amount of good deeds, no amount of trying to make up for the past, trying to straighten things out, no amount of good works for others in whatever capacity you can help them, and no amount of ministry in the church can possibly earn from God a payment of righteousness. All that is is self-righteousness that he rejects with a vengeance. The righteousness is Christ's alone. It is imputed to us. It, we are declared to be righteous, but it's his righteousness. And therefore, we, there is confidence. That gives us the confidence that this gift of pardon and righteousness is indeed ours. And how do we receive it? We receive this gift of pardon and righteousness by lifting the empty hands of repentance. Not in, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. And placing our confidence, our hope, our trust, our life in Christ. It is he alone that gives me peace with God. That is the grace of God. God doing for us what we could not and would not do for ourselves. Granting us pardon and righteousness in Christ and in Christ alone. And this should evoke in us a consequence. This should produce in us a sense of awe, a sense of worship that motivates us then to strip our lives of the self-absorption, self-approval, self-justification, self-satisfaction that dominates our lives because of what Christ has done for us. It should change the way that we look at ourselves and the way that we look at other people. It should cause us to see that we are all equally valuable as human beings made in the image of God. Paul writes about it's to the Jew and the Gentile. It, you can put any other category in there, the rich or the poor, the educated, the uneducated, the, the uh, black or the white, or any other racial mix you can put in there. All people are equal in the eyes of God because there's only one way to righteousness, and it's through Christ. So we're all equal in our human value before God, but we are also all equal in our sin. I've been dealing with men from, with life-controlling problems now for a long time. You know, I've heard some terrible things that men have done. 
You know what God showed me many, many years ago? I'm no different than they are. If I'd had the opportunity, if I didn't care about the consequences, then I'm capable of doing anything that anybody's ever done. And so are you. You're no better than I am. You're certainly no worse than I am, but you're no better either. We're all equal. And that's okay. I can confess I don't have any righteousness. I'm really a bad person. I really am. I'm, I'm not, you have no idea. Only God knows. And he says, Jack, you're so bad that if I give you what you deserve, you're going to be in eternal damnation. So that's what God thinks of me. So what bad thing can you possibly add to that that you want to say about me? God's covered all the bases. We're all equal in that. You look different, you're nice, and you do various nice things for people, but God knows the real deal. And so that reality that in me there is no righteousness, it's all in Christ, frees me to be able to say, I don't, I'm not, I don't, I can't, can I look down on you? I mean, yeah, you did terrible things, but you know, you know, different than I. But it also gives me a basis in God's grace to know that we're all equal too, as brothers and sisters in Christ, regardless of position in life or in society or in the church, we're all equal in grace. We love our children the same. They're all equally our children. And so it is with God. So that we now can have a response to God that wants to obey him out of love and not fear of punishment. Because of what he has done. And also then worship God from the heart. And not because it's commanded, but because you want to. Because you treasure him as being this God. The awesome God. That word should only be used about God. The awesome God. That's who he is. And so we can worship. And we can grow and look forward to the day when we stand before God, not clothed in our own righteousness, but knowing I've been clothed with Christ's goodness, his righteousness, and accepted completely as if it were God the Son himself standing before the Father. That's the goodness of God. Righteousness is not optional. It's commanded. God has provided it. Let's make sure that we've received it in Christ, in Christ alone. Let's pray.